Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. We will continue on a remorseless mission to squeeze Russia from the global economy piece by piece, day by day, and week by week. One thing, of course, we could also do is to make an open and unconditional offer to Ukrainian refugees to house them in the United Kingdom. We haven't seen all of what Putin's going to do at the moment. We do not know what his end goal is. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepker. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. Coming up on today's programme, we're here from our interview with former Chancellor Philip Hammond and we speak to Darlington's Conservative MP Peter Gibson. Plus, are nurse shortages in the UK a danger to patient safety? We'll discuss that later in the show. Now, a big policy speech from Boris Johnson on housing today as he attempts to rebuild his standing among Conservative backbenchers. The Prime Minister will reiterate a pledge to, quote, unlock home ownership for new generations of voters, long a priority for the Conservatives. The logic goes if you own a house, you have a stake in the system and you're more likely to care about stability and economic growth and therefore perhaps more likely to vote Tory. But this is the this is far from the first time we've been briefed about a big new plan to relaunch Johnson's leadership. There was the big reset after Dominic Cummings left in 2020, a flurry of policy announcements after Afghanistan's government collapsed in 2021, and another big staffing reshuffle after the Partygate revelations earlier this year. But after this week's bruising encounter with his own backbenchers, the PM will know that today's announcement on mortgages comes very much on borrowed time. Well, let's discuss the day's big issues with our first guest, Peter Gibson, Conservative MP for Darlington. Good to have you on the programme, Peter. Thank you. Um, you Good backed, morning, Caroline. Good morning. You backed Boris Johnson in this week's confidence vote. Were you surprised that so many of your colleagues, 148 in all, didn't? Well, I have to be honest with you. Um, I, I was a little surprised at the number. Um, I've been away from Westminster for a number of weeks, so I wasn't sort of that's close to what had been going on here over the last couple of weeks. But I think what I can say to you is that having had conversations with a number of colleagues who voted against the Prime Minister on Monday is that the larger part of those numbers are willing to come back into the fold, support the Prime Minister and get on with the job of moving forward and delivering on our manifesto commitments. This is not about policy differences. This is this is about their personal view of the Prime Minister. But I think for a large part of that, those people are going to put this behind us and we the, can move the, forward. Three days after the vote? Sorry? Three days after the vote, those 148 well, members of Parliament voted uh, you know, to say that they did not have confidence in the Prime Minister, but you say that they would will support him and focus on policy three days after the vote? Well, the Prime Minister's position is one of complete legitimacy. He has an 80-seat majority following the 2019 general election and under the rules of the Conservative Party um, was democratically elected as the party leader and following the processes of Monday, um, the majority of the Conservative Party have confidence in him and we move forward. 
Peter, is it your feeling that um, that uh, MPs in the north of the country, perhaps some of those Red Wall MPs, were a little bit more disposed to to stick with Boris Johnson than perhaps some of the MPs in the more traditional seats, or, or do you not think that that breakdown quite holds? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure how much speculating about you know what was in people's minds uh, is is particularly helpful at this point in time having got the vote and now moving forward but from from my perspective i know that a large part of my success and victory in darlington and many of my colleagues around me in the northeast um can confidently say that boris remains popular in their constituencies and part of the reason that we succeeded and won in seats like darlington and redcar and sedgefield and Blythe valley are just to name a few, are part of the success that Boris Johnson brought to us. Mm. Um, Okay. Uh, The former Chancellor, Philip Hammond, was speaking to Bloomberg today. Um, Obviously, he's uh, a little bit removed in terms of being a former Chancellor and under uh, the former Prime Minister, Theresa May. But he branded Boris Johnson a vote loser. Do you think that there's any truth in that? You've got two by-elections coming up. Well, you you must forgive me, I I didn't hear the interview that you did with Philip. Um, Philip certainly hasn't been knocking on the doors in Darlington any time recently in my living memory. So how in tune he is with the voters on the doorsteps of Redwall Northern seats, I am not sure at all. Uh, He is entitled to his view, but certainly in my constituency... Boris remains popular. Uh, The Prime Minister came and visited Darlington just a couple of weeks ago and was welcomed with open arms by many people in the streets. And as I regularly go and knock on doors in my constituency, what they are saying to me is that their primary concern is things like the cost of living which we are tackling. They are concerned about access to dentistry and doctors. They, they are, yes, angry, disappointed, annoyed, frustrated about the whole party gate thing. But what they overwhelmingly are saying to me is, can the media not please stop banging on about this and can we move on and get on with the job that government's there to do? All right, well, let's move on and talk about what the Prime Minister wants to talk about, which is his housing and policy changes. How do you feel about benefit claimants being able to use housing benefits towards buying a house? Well, I think this is a really innovative policy. We we know from the 1980s that, you know, the ability for people to buy council houses was transformative for their fortunes and their social mobility. And I think extending that to people who effectively are trapped in a situation where they have to rent either from a private landlord or from a social landlord and being able to open up the opportunities for those people to get on the housing ladder and move forward and build an asset rather than seeing all of their money that they're paying for housing simply um, not building anything for them is a very innovative idea and I welcome it with open arms. Most people on housing benefit are on very, very tight budgets, aren't they? They're really struggling to make ends meet. Do you think the banks are are on side with this? Do you think banks are really going to advance mortgages to people who've got no spare cash? Well, if you look at the cost of renting property as opposed to buying property and money in terms of borrowing has never been cheaper than before and you look at what people are paying in their mortgages compared to what they are paying in rent, it, it is it is perverse 
that people who are renting are paying substantially more per month than somebody who is buying a property over a long period of time. And if we can open up those opportunities to people who are on low incomes, who otherwise would face no prospect of ever being able to get on the housing ladder, and we open up that opportunity to them, I think that's an absolutely marvellous thing in terms of the ability for people to build an asset, save for their lifetime, and, and actually own the home that they are living in. Mm. But as usual, much of this is demand side reform. It's not supply side. Um, you know, this would potentially deplete social housing. I know there's a debate within the Conservative Party about, you know, having to commit to replacing those homes that would then be bought up. But that is not what happened in the wake of, of Margaret Thatcher's 1980s policy. Surely we just need to build more homes. Well, we do need to move, build more homes. And, and if I look at the, the local situation in my constituency, Darlington Borough Council, which still re- retains its local housing stock as a local authority, they're building 250 new council homes this year. So, yes, we do need to build new homes. But actually enabling somebody to buy the home that they're already living in is not actually a net depletion of homes. It actually then enables the either the social housing provider or the council to use those receipts from the sale of those properties to continue to build more homes. So by, by somebody buying their council homes or their social housing home, it, it is not preventing somebody else from being in that because they bought it. They're still living in the same property. They bought that but the provider of the property can actually then use the receipt to build more homes. Petrol prices at uh, £1.75 a litre, diesel at £1.85. Whether or not it's the government's fault, do you worry that, do you worry that your party is going to get the blame uh, for rising petrol prices? Well, governments get the blame for everything, don't they, Ewan? Um, so <laughs> everything that's going wrong in the world is obviously always the government's fault. I, I fully understand and appreciate the scale of the fuel crisis that we're we're facing from around the world at this particular point in time. And, you know, I I see the price of fuel at the petrol station and it it is hurting people. Um, We need to see that price come down. And as global demand has returned post-COVID and supply hasn't been able to keep up with it, we've we've faced this spike in prices. I'm I'm hoping that it will level out. And sadly, the, the Chancellor's um, cut in fuel duty hasn't had the the impact that it would hope to have had because prices have still continued to climb. So I know that the Chancellor will be keeping this under review and I would urge and encourage every retailer of fuel to ensure that all of those savings are passed on to consumers from the fuel duty cut. Yeah, of, of five pence. Um, Rishi Sunak is surely going to be under pressure to do more. Um, you know, come the autumn budget, it's going to have to, he's going to have to think very carefully about how much more to spend. Well, indeed, and I'm quite sure that the Chancellor keeps these things under regular review. And just as we saw during the COVID pandemic, as the situation unfolded and the impact of the pandemic uh, became apparent, the Chancellor regularly came back to the House with fresh proposals and fresh ideas to help and support British so the, people. And the cost of living crisis is and, on the same scale as the pandemic, in your view, then? I didn't say that. What I said was that we've got a responsive Chancellor who listens to the problem and as the situation unfolds, he responds and comes back with 
further help and support, just mm. as he did during the pandemic. We've seen him extend the help and support with the cost of living issues. Um, just a fortnight ago, we've seen a, yeah. a further packages and measures yeah, anticipating fuel increases in, in the autumn. So I, I've every confidence that the Chancellor is listening and is fully aware of these Peter. issues and is keeping matters under review. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The Royal College of Nursing is warning that staff shortages in the NHS are posing a risk to patient safety. It says that its members have told them of people going without medicines and of sick patients deteriorating without staff noticing. This, as around one in ten nurse posts in England are currently unfilled. Joining us now is Donna Hales, who is general nurse from Sheffield and also a member of the Royal College of Nursing. Thank you so much for being with us, Donna. Tell us what the situation is like then, where you are in South Yorkshire and the sort of pressures that you're under. I think that throughout the country, not just South Yorkshire, um, all hospital trusts at the moment are having problems uh, with retention and recruitment. Um, And the RCN, obviously, quite rightly, has highlighted this again um, in terms of patient safety. But, you know, I'm I'm kind of disappointed because this is nothing new because the the Commons Health and Social Care Committee uh, pre-pandemic was actually warning about uh, nursing shortages. And it also warned in January 2001 um, that they were really worried about the staff coping with chronic excessive workloads, etc. And the fact that we were having such a problem with recruitment and retention. Just give us a bit of a picture of, of, of what the situation is, is like where you are. What are some of the day-to-day pressures w- w- which, which, which you're under? I think the, the day-to-day pressures are, um, you know, uh, some of the areas is the skill mix. Um, you haven't got very experienced nurses working in areas uh, like ITU, for example. The staff are much more junior than they would have been, say, five years ago, even ten years ago. Um, you know, one in ten nurses wanting to leave the, the profession is, is, is very reasonable. Um, and, you know, we are having problems recruiting and retaining staff. I think the other thing is that uh, post-pandemic, um, we're also seeing a lot of staff off with long-term sickness, uh, PTSD, long COVID, um, and, and people really just can't face coming to work at times. The number of nurses um, in the 2010s actually rose pretty steadily. This was a period when government budgets were under huge pressure. They've now yeah. dipped since the pandemic. Is that because it was such an exceptional period, as you say, with COVID? Uh, that we've just been through? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I can't remember where I, where I saw this information. It's quite a while ago. But in 2005, where that was the best time for nursing recruitment and, mm. and retention. Um, and gradually it has become worse and worse. Um, I think that the pandemic just really focused people's attention on the reasons why they didn't want to continue in the profession. I mean, um, again, the Nursing Times in, two th- in January of this year was saying that um, in an audit they did of 10, nearly 10,000 um, 
staff nurses and student nurses half were thinking about quitting the profession then so this this that uh, this idea that you know we're suddenly um having great effects on patient safety isn't any surprise and we be we know most unions and most organizations like nurses united for example um and other unions have actually been saying we're having big problems here guys but it seems to have gone unnoticed nurse numbers are up about 10 percent on just before the pandemic and they're certainly up uh, greatly on where they were five or, or ten years ago. What's your prescription for, for Im- improving recruitment of, of nurses? I think that um, the, the problem is that we've lost, uh, the main problem is we've lost a lot of senior nurses um, over this last 10 years. You know, we certainly had a lot of nurses that reached retirement age. Um, and, re, you know, recruitment over during the pandemic increased slightly because we had a lot of nurses uh, re- returning to, to nursing um, to help out during the pandemic. They've all gone now. Um, we also know that about 38% of um, positions are now being filled by overseas nurses. Um, and that is a policy by um, NHS England and NHS Improvement. Um, but there's all sorts of issues with that as well in terms of the visa costs, uh, leave to stay. You know, they have to renew their visas every five years. So there's, there's a good chance that the nurses that will be recruited from overseas in five years' time will automatically go, go back back to the country of origin, um, which then again will leave us with this huge dip in, in nurses actually on the mm. ground. Yeah, I mean, the Royal College of Nursing has been um, talking about that today. They've had research out saying that actually the UK is recruiting from countries that are very short staffed themselves, um, you know, from yeah. a third of the world's most short staffed c- countries. So that is problematic. I mean, not just for the UK, but obviously for the countries of origin where they're, they're coming from. I mean, is there any real um, government change though afoot uh, amidst all of this? As you say, these are long running but very serious problems. Yeah, I, I don't think there is. I think it's been something that, uh, you know, we've been, we've been talking about recruitment retention probably for at least the last 10 years. Um, it's not longer um, because we could see that sort of applicants into uh, universities, etc., were dropping. People were actually leaving the profession quite quickly, um, and we've also got to consider at the moment, we, we, you know, the impact of the cost of living um, raise, uh, rises and things. You know, we, we, I was reading an article about nurses not being able to afford to pay to go to work because of petrol and things. Um, yes. So, uh, you know, money is a big part of this, but I don't think it's been the main part. I think at the moment, nurses are really scared that they're not giving good quality care and they really can't advocate for their patients. Um, And I can tell you an example locally, a local hospice um, in our area that that, that sort of covers the whole of Derbyshire uh, and South Yorkshire, the children's hospice, um, it's a really good facility. I've got some friends and some other people that I know that use the facility for respite care. They've had to close their respite care um, because they can't get enough qualified nurses. Yeah, this is so... disheartening yeah difficult very dangerous Donna thank you so much for being with us and for your time Donna Hales is a general nurse from Sheffield uh, also a member of the Royal College of uh, Nurses well now let's get on to another big interview former Chancellor Philip Hammond says that Boris Johnson is now a vote loser and any new leader will need time before an, an election Lord Hammond spoke to Bloomberg TV earlier today take a listen I can't say whether he'll be Prime Minister going into 2023, but I don't think that he will lead the party into the next general election. I think uh, um, a rebellion on this scale is very difficult uh, to survive, and I think he'll find that his authority uh, in the party uh, ebbs away over the next few months. 
does he realize and will it change the policies that he'll put in place? I don't know whether he realises, but I know that Boris Johnson's um, instinct now will be to reach for popular policies, do the populist thing, uh, and try to offer people what in the short term they think they want. Unfortunately, we're at a point in our economic cycle where what we need is a dose of realism. Um, We have some challenges in this country to face. The sooner we get to grips with them and, and face them honestly and openly... Uh, the quicker we'll get out of them and the better chance we've got of resuming uh, a strong growth path and rebuilding living standards. So so 40% of his own MPs in the Conservative Party voted against him. Why are they against him? I mean, this is not not necessarily about Partygate. No, I think it's deeper than that. I think it's, um, and and to to be honest, my, my colleagues are very focused once you get to the tipping point in a parliament, the second half of a parliament heading towards the next general election, very focused on the question of whether we can win the next election, whether they can hold on to their seats and their jobs. Uh, And I think the verdict is that um, Boris Johnson is no longer, uh, on balance, a vote winner for the Conservative Party. He's potentially a vote loser. Uh, And I think um, the message is, is seeping through that the party needs to change direction. And for anybody taking over the leadership of the party to be able to rebuild trust with the British people is going to take some time. It's no good doing this six, nine months before a general election. It's going to have to be done sooner rather than later. Why do they think he's a vote loser? The evidence around them, the polling evidence, and we'll see you know, evidence in by-elections um, over the coming weeks. Do, do you think he should resign? Well, um, it's a bit academic, really. That isn't um, in the nature of prime ministers, and I'm not at all surprised that the prime minister's position is that he's won the vote, and even if he'd won it by a single vote, he will soldier on. Um, That was also Theresa May's position after she won a confidence vote um, in 2018, but the writing was on the wall uh, from that point onwards. Authority just uh, quietly drains away. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a cumulative um, effect, um, and I think we'll see a drip feed of, uh, unfortunately, bad news around the UK economy over the coming um, months that is going to make it much, much more difficult for the Prime Minister. But can you draw real parallels between Theresa May and what's happening to, to Boris Johnson? Or because the personalities are so widely different, Boris Johnson will also deal with it differently? He will deal with it differently, but I think the other big difference is that, of course, Theresa May had no overall majority in Parliament and was therefore immediately vulnerable to defeats in Parliament. Boris is much less vulnerable to defeats in Parliament because of the size of the Conservative majority, although clearly if even um, a half of the people uh, who uh, voted against him on Monday were to vote against um, the Tory whip in the Commons, uh, the government would be badly defeated. But that, that's probably not the way it's going to happen. I think this is probably going to be about a slow attrition of authority over the course of the summer and into the autumn. Um, so, so, Lord Hammond, talk to me a little bit about how it works in your Conservative Party. Are there you know, behind-the-scenes conversations now about who could replace him? Are they coalescing behind a candidate, or is it still all out in the open? No, well, I, don't, I don't think they are coalescing behind a candidate, and that, of course, is part of the problem for the rebels and part of the um, good fortune of the Prime Minister that there is not an obvious successor. Wind the clock back uh, six months and Rishi Sunak looked like the obvious inheritor building a very strong position but he has been damaged by the um, 
perhaps unfairly, but he has nonetheless been damaged uh, by the uh, issues around his wife's tax status. And I think just by, um, you know, at a time of cost of living crisis, people being reminded that he comes from a very different um, set of circumstances from most of them. So I think, you know, most of my former colleagues in Parliament do not regard Rishi Sunak as being um, the likely front runner in an early competition. If it, if it goes long, he may have a chance to rebuild um, his position. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.